0: Global Capital Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the London Bureau Chief. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Markets and Sustainability Editor. Now this is the podcast that brings you all that's most interesting from the capital markets and this week that happens to be rather a lot, so strap in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Later on we'll be joined by our bank finance editor Atanas Dinov who will be explaining why banks are having such an easy time raising capital but also giving us an assessment on whether problems in the commercial real estate sector are about to derail all of that. Um, And we'll also be joined by George Collard, our senior emerging markets reporter. Who was on a couple of weeks ago to talk about the return after two years of African sovereign bond issuance. He's back so soon because that market has sped up Kenya uh, which was considered a serious default risk not long ago and, and perhaps still is, is now reading a new dollar bond so he'll be on to talk to us about that. But first we have uh, some contrasting fortunes to discuss John in ESG capital markets. Um, at least as far as the products are concerned. So we'll start with the good news and get that out of the way before we get stuck into mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the the grim tale of the sustainability linked loans. Um, Japan, is going to do a transition bond. Um, tell us a little bit about its plans. Yeah, so
0: this is a, a very important landmark deal in sustainable finance um Japan hasn't issued any labeled bonds before it's obviously one of the one of the very biggest uh, developed market governments that hasn't done that the US being another um and it is now bringing to fruition a plan that it's been developing for several years around transition now this is very well worked out um the Japanese government has designed a whole strategy of transforming its economy which it calls the GX programme, Green Transformation. Um, and, and it's it's taken its own route uh, in dealing with climate and, and, and in working out how to refashion its economy. And, and the government has gone a long way in planning how each sector should go on a decarbonisation journey. And this bond is really tied to all of that.
1: Right. And these bonds, they're going to be two 800 billion yen deals one of five years one of 10 years that's about 5.4 billion dollars each and they're coming to the market on wednesday uh, by auction is that right john the first one's
0: coming on wednesday that next week that's the 10 year by auction and then the second tranche will be a couple of weeks later also by auction so they're not going to be syndicated they'll be sold just as ordinary japanese government bonds but the which are always in yen by the way but the um government has engaged a panel of seven banks five japanese and two international to market the deal and they've they've done roadshows to the us and in europe they've a lot of investors have even been over to japan to meet the ministry of finance and so there's very much the intent to make this an internationally sold deal um that that really draws and captures the attention of specifically environmental social and governments minded investors so they're not doing uh, this transition bond just to sort of sell it to their ordinary investors in the ordinary way they do want to uh, you know achieve something different with it
1: um a simpleton such as myself um tends to associate transition bonds with uh, brazilian meat packing companies <laughs> and you know other companies with what with businesses that don't generally pass the smell test, frankly, when it comes to um, good (laughs) environmental practice. Japan, uh, you know, as you say, big developed market sovereign sovereigns normally issue green bonds, not transition bonds. Mm. This really is quite a different sort of program, isn't it? Yes, it is. And,
0: And it's very interesting because of that. Now, transition finance has been sort of people have grasped for a long time that this was really important. After all, you know so far that the economy the part the share of the economy that you can really call green is quite small, and you you know different there are different estimates, but it can be from a few percentage points to you know ten or fifteen percent now um it, but certainly not more than that. the vast swathes in in, in the mainstream of the economy it, you can't call green yet everyone knows they need to transition we all need to get to zero carbon um but but there's a long way to go and and in many cases it's not clear yet how that can be done for example japan's program is very much uh, this is its economic program i mean is very much based on the high emitting sectors and that's things like steel cement shipping uh, the, the transport sector all of these which which have very high carbon emissions at the moment and not necessarily an obvious path to decarbonization so um it's really beginning to tackle the, the sort of difficult issues, which is how to finance the, the, the main part of the economy to transition. Now, in Western Europe, as you're right, you you referred to um, there having been very few transition financing so far, and that's because people have really struggled with how to, how to accomplish this.
1: So give us a flavour of what they're actually using the proceeds for. Um, are these... Sort of bona fide pucker environmental projects of the sort you might fund a green bond with or is it all rather more speculative and uh, uh i was gonna say dubious i don't mean dubious i mean questionable mm. from
0: that well there's been an, an awful lot of talk about this as it's a government project obviously it's been fairly transparent there's been a lot a lot out there uh for some time about how the government was designing its um economic transition the uh, Just to give you the, the, the basic parameters, they plan that there should be 150 trillion yen of uh, overall investment in private and public sectors in the economy between now and 2034. Now, that's about a trillion dollars. Now, of that 20 trillion yen, so uh, roughly, uh, you know, a fifth of it or somewhat less than a fifth is going to come from the government itself. So this 20 trillion yen, that's about $135 billion, uh, the government will spend and they're going to raise that money with these uh, transition bonds. Now, what's interesting about the first deals, the ones that are coming this month, is that they are spending 55% of of the proceeds on research and development and the other 45% on subsidies. Um, and this really is quite different from, from what most of the other governments uh, have done. And, and and the research and development will be very heavily concentrated on these high emitting sectors. So it'll be into cutting edge technologies that, that the Japanese government thinks the private sector will struggle to finance without help. So that does particularly mean some of the more, uh, you know, perhaps questionable things like hydrogen, ammonia, um, at carbon capture and storage, things like that that you know the the sort of hardcore environmentalists are very skeptical of because they're worried that that people will will kind of rely on these somewhat pipe dream technologies
1: mm. i suppose it 's almost like a, a, a sci fi bond um, you know they 're well, investing in speculative yeah. technology really aren 't they, and yeah. I guess that 's how this this technology comes to fruition how it will develop quicker.
0: Yes. And what's interesting, what what actually happened this week is that the Japanese government secured the certification from the Climate Bonds Initiative, which is the NGO based in London, which has done, you know, more probably than any other organisation to promote uh, green bonds and, and climate bonds over the last 15 years. And they have um, a, a standard which they you can you can apply for for a green or greenish bond, and which is called the climate bond. And, and there are rigorous scientific criteria you you have to meet in order to get it. And the Japanese government thought long and hard when it was bringing its transition bond about whether to make it a green bond or not. You know, there, there, there was a sort of one idea was well, we'll just call it a transition bond and then no one can call accuse us of greenwashing if they don't think it's very green. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that approach. And that is fundamentally the reason why the other transition bonds that have been issued in, in the West have have been done. The issuers didn't want to be sort of accused of pretending they were green when they weren't. But the Japanese government decided in the end to go and make it a green bond. And that was partly because of feedback from investors, the the major um, ESG funds in, in, in the West, which particularly said, look, uh, you know, we're very interested in this deal, but it has to be a green bond because our mandates require that so you've got to go and and ensure that this transition spending is can also really be considered green
1: this is a really interesting um innovation as a word gets banded around a lot in the capital markets but i suppose it is innovative um sovereigns uh some sovereigns have issued green bonds with great fervor others have come to the market reluctantly Uh, One of the key features of a sovereign bond market, the borrowers often tell us, is that they don't like diluting the brand. You know, you just have Mm -hmm. one sovereign bond product. It's easy to understand. It's issued come hell or high water. uh, And it's a a proper benchmark for everyone. And it's Mm. the most liquid instrument available. But this is, uh, if this seems like a way of, Um, funding research into making these sort of more speculative technologies uh, more environmentally friendly or more sustainable, do you think more sovereigns will consider copying Japan's approach?
0: Yes, I think it's it's, it's a very interesting thing to think about. And uh, Sean Kidney, the CEO of the Climate Bonds Initiative, whom I spoke to yesterday, does expect there to be more um, Asian potential uh, government issues of transition bonds, although he said that he didn't know of any specific plans, but but he, he, but there is definitely a growing interest in transition um, as as a as a thing that needs to be financed in Asia, but also in Europe and in the U.S. And uh, you know, one point is that in the U.S., uh, you know, the word green is, uh, as Sean put it, a, a political red flag to some, but but transition is. It's easier to digest, perhaps. And and it does imply a sort of greater emphasis on the economy remaining uh, productive.
1: Okay, well, that's tremendously exciting. Um, We'll keep an eye out for how those uh, two Japanese bonds are priced and placed and um, see if the market takes to them. Um, Moving away from that. we should talk about our loans reporter Anna Fatty's story about sustainability-linked loans, which is an altogether less optimistic tale. Now, SLLs—they're among the OGs, by which I mean original <laughs> greens of the ESG financing <laughs> market—and we've covered their their rise uh, and their ascendancy, and and also, frankly, over the last couple of years, their shortcomings. Um, but what has Anna found out this week about the product? Well.
0: It's not so much that anything specific has happened this week. It's more that in talking to bankers, she found that there was a remarkable uh, unanimity almost of opinion that the the product was going to keep declining. Now, it's already declined. Last year, issuance globally fell about 36 percent, I think, according to our figures using dealogic data um for after after soaring enormously in the years 2017 to 2021 it hit a peak of about 600 billion dollars for a couple of years of of new sustainability linked loans being created um in 2021 and and 22 but it but it's declined and there the bankers feel that there are, the, the the shine has gone off it and the enthusiasm for it has waned and what anna found was that they were not expecting that really to to return.
1: That's uh, that's that's very sad. And um, what were their concerns? What's why's the shine gone off the product? Well,
0: there are th- there really three interrelated reasons, as Anna analysed it. One is that uh, sustainable finance is becoming more regulated, and that means that you know where a few years ago people were happy to just sort of uh, make something kind of sustainable. And and be excited about it. There's a lot more rigor required now. Regulators look at it more carefully. There are, the, the European Union has built a whole kind of wodge of regulation around sustainable finance since 2018. It doesn't specifically address uh, sustainability-linked loans in great detail at the moment. But you know the whole climate of having to be careful about what you claim and justify has has has, has changed. A um, link to that is the fear of greenwashing. Now, what this means really is that um, people fear being accused of greenwashing. So companies issuing a sustainability-linked loan or banks providing one are worried that if they do so and then somebody says, oh, well, you know, it's not terribly sustainable, is it? Then they it will look bad and it will be very embarrassing. There'll be stories in the media and so on. So, So that's a kind of slight disincentive. And the other thing is just that people are finding that these loans are quite difficult to structure. Um, you know, they take a long time. The, the targets are difficult to work out. And, you know, that they were willing to do that when, when they felt like they were getting big PR kudos for it. But if that's not so certain, then, you know, they're not sure they can make the effort.
1: Do you think there's a future for reviving? sll or do you think they're really dead in the water i you know it see, it seems to me that um well you know we will remember the stories that we published over over the years about um borrowers for example signing these loans and worrying about the uh kpis later uh, or just not disclosing them at all um that obviously drives the greenwashing accusations um it's not a you know take the sustainability bond market for example i mean it also you know faces has faced its own sort of critics but you you can't sort of not set the sustainability terms and then price the bond um mm. is you know could, could this just be a matter of transparency
0: yes i think i think Well, you've asked about four different questions in one of them. <laughs> but i think um first of all um the problems with the market i mean i yes absolutely lack of transparency in my view is is the the number one problem and the market has really gone the wrong way with it the, because loans are typically private they've done sustainability linked loans in a private way without disclosing usually anything at all about um, what the targets are in numerical terms or, or just describing them in, in in a very vague way and i think this uh, has led to two bad effects. One is a lack of confidence in them. You know, people can't tell what what the company is actually saying it will do. But also, um, be under the cover of that privacy, they've made them far too complicated. They've stuffed them with five or six uh, environmental targets that the company then has to meet certain levels of every year. Um, and the whole thing produces a, a complex matrix. I mean no wonder they find them difficult to do whereas in the sustainability-linked bond market you can't you couldn't possibly do something like that the, the investors just find it too complicated so they have kept them very simple and usually there's just one target or two they're they're tested only once for each target during the life of the of the bond and and the interest rate consequence is very clear and is public and so you can say what you like about sustainability-linked bonds and people have criticized them but but You know they're transparent now the loan market i think could could improve its prospects a lot by taking a leaf out of that book and going that way and and the objections i've heard that you know it's a private product so they're not convincing at all there's there's absolutely no reason why companies couldn't uh, make this part of the structure public but do you Um, think they will bring them back well so whether they will now that's that's a different question now the first thing to say is that you know this product has not died there was still $350 billion or something of, of fresh uh, loans created globally last year. And I think there was some evidence of, of it actually having grown in Asia, for example. So there's a lot of companies still uh, very enthusiastic about it. And, you know, we had an example this week. Uh, Anna wrote about Axiona, a Spanish construction company. They actually did a what's called a samurai loan where they went to the Japanese market, 45 billion yen, um, which is 200 and something uh, million euros. And they it was not only sustainability linked, it was also a green loan, and they introduced an extra sort of impact feature where they'll try and create local impact so that 's a company, and there are many others um, n l the Italian uh, energy companies and other which which are very enthusiastic about sustainable finance, they have applied it to as much of their financing as they want, can, and they want to keep doing that, and that 's because they believe that it's truly communicating their sustainability commitment. To the market and to the public in general, and and I think you know. So there'll certainly be a kind of dedicated core that continues to do that. The question is whether it can revive as a as a more broadly accepted product.
1: Yeah. So down but not out is the uh, is the yes. is the status and, at the moment. And definitely, the, this,
0: as a, as a teacher might say, room for improvement. And I think <laughs> it's, it's now over to the market to
1: try and make those improvements. Right. Right. Um, Well, we'll be tracking that, of course, as as Anna continues to cover the subject. Uh, Now, meanwhile, we must turn our attention to the bank financing market and uh, possible possible worries about commercial real estate, which could, you know, maybe derail an incredibly busy rampant market at the moment. And then also onto sovereign bonds from Africa. good morning Atanas welcome back to the global capital podcast
2: good morning Ralph thanks for having me again
1: uh, it's, it's always a pleasure um now give us a flavor of how hot the fig bond market is this week I mean you've, you've said that uh banks are able to do basically whatever they want and to push pricing as tight as they like almost um give us a give us a flavor through some of the uh, the deals that have happened as to just just how amazing it is
2: um, yeah it's been it's been phenomenal it's uh it's yet another week of um, of great funding conditions at very tight valuations on relative but also historical basis, um, and and as an example, um, I mean all, all banks that are issuing big or medium smaller size they're getting their funding done at um, fair value or inside fair value. But as an example, um, this week BNP Paribas they issued ten um, years in your non-preferred bond. Um, at the spread of 140 basis points in January. They did an eight year senior non preferred at 160 basis points. So that shows you in January when conditions were already good. They were still paying a higher spread for a, for a shorter bond, which I think is a, is a great illustration for this for the same type of an asset class, just how much better it's got. And and when you remember in, in January, we were talking about that um, great phenomenal lo- rally at the end of uh, last year, which tightened spread so much. And then there was a bit of a correction um, because it it went on so fast. And when people issued secondary levels widened, but now it's got even better after that.
0: And just to be clear, Athanas, we're talking when you're saying that the bonds are coming at fair value, it means the issuers are not paying any new issue premium over and above where their secondary bonds are trading of of equivalent maturity. Now, in, in my experience, it's pretty rare that you get this happening to more than the odd deal i mean you in in most market conditions you you'll find the odd deal that, that that get that achieves that but you've been seeing this on deal after deal haven't you and how how unusual is that in the fig market
2: yeah you you're right it's it's very unusual to to keep on happening um like that um uh it's 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 actually week after week now um and uh i was i was looking for example in covered bonds uh based on our own data of um, primary market monitor there was only one deal in january last year that price with no new issue concession whereas now this year in this january there were a few and in february it got even better but um the, what, what is actually even more interesting is all these new issuance that's been happening at the long end uh in senior bonds uh between seven to ten years that actually has flattened the curve So uh, that means that if you're buying a longer dated bond, you're not compensated as much as before, right, for the extra risk. And that's actually created a bit of a distortion between primary and secondary levels, so much that um, actually it may even actually these deals, because of that distortion, may actually be pricing inside fair value.
1: And it's not just the uh, senior trades or the secured lending, you know, the sort of safe Sort of straightforward stuff is it the um additional tier one market has been going absolute gangbusters this week
2: yeah you're right you're right and if you go to um our uh story you can see that in the cartoon uh it just sums it all up uh the the risk is um bank debt is is selling like um like uh, popular hot dogs um uh they, these things are very risky um capital that's that's just above equity right Um, but that is also pricing um, at fair value or depending how you see it, maybe a little bit inside fair value and this is all because um, uh, there's just a lot of a lot of money Um, one person really described it so well when when UBS issued a 1 billion bond which was maximum size from the very beginning They, they got the for the 81 demand of almost 12 billion for 12, 12 times over subscription, that just shows you how much money is out there, right? Um, for for something that risky, which which still carries um, a lot of risk, uh, not not in particular in the case of UBS, but in general, right? There are a lot of people who want to buy that because of the higher yield.
0: And UBS did a deal, didn't they, in September, I think, um, that that was one of the outstanding deals of last year. Um, with huge demand, the first time UBS had issued since the Credit Suisse debacle in March, um, but it, but uh, in ter- terms of pricing, it was quite different from this one.
2: It was you're you're right, John. Uh, so when when they issued the the first deal after they've taken over Credit Suisse, in they they did um, they did two tranches um, of 1.75 billion each at nine and a half percent at the time they were having a two and a half billion eighty-one 81 redemption which they called earlier this year so that meant they they've raised extra 1 billion of new 81 capital right that, with without the one that they redeemed, but they they paid for each of these two tranches they paid nine and a half percent for the new one now they're paying 7.75 um, percent so you can see the, the the big difference right just um just in what in over three months
1: why is there so much cash chasing these bonds at the moment? Is that to do with the predictions around falling interest rates to come, or are investor cash balances high for sort of technical reasons, or is there something else?
2: Yeah, I guess it's it's a combination of that, Ralph. Um, it's at the beginning of the year. Usually, funds get huge allocations, and um, and credit funds in particular uh, keep keep seeing big inflows. So um, they they've been buying. They've, there's been a lot of uh, credit inflows and and investors have been very happy to allocate it to credit. Um, and then, on the other hand, is this um, anticipation, maybe um, uh, somewhat of a of a hope for for sooner rate cuts? Because when a, when a rate cut happens, and you're holding um, a fixed income um, product, um, the, you're going to have a price appreciation, right, of a capital gain. So everybody's hoping bam, rate cut happens, and we're now holding something far more valuable than when we bought it on top of the higher yield that it is offering. But although the,
0: the market's behaving with with incredible gusto about bank risk, it's not like the sector isn't facing any risk, is it, Atanas? In fact, worries about commercial real estate seem to be mounting.
2: Last week, a New York Community Bank announced a surprise loss tied to commercial real estate. Um, then uh, Japan's Alzara Bank uh, also posted a loss tied to that sector. Deutsche Bank posted higher risk provisions for its um, for its uh, uh, real estate exposure that that created um, concerns among people when obviously the focus was on these banks that were most exposed to that sector that naturally went to you know to uh, to German real estate banks uh, deutsche fanbrief bank areal bank because they are, they're they real estate lenders that's that's their specialty uh, pbb is actually a commercial pbb's uh, deutsche fanbrief Bank's abbreviation they're actually uh, a specialized commercial real estate lender that that's their business and they actually um have come under significant well their bonds prices on the screens have become have, have been under a, a lot of pressure so much that on the 7th of february they put out a press release uh, they put out their guidance uh preliminary earnings ahead of schedule where they said they're still on track to 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 be profitable uh this year they were going to post 90 million profit uh which was in line with expectation but they actually called the current problems uh, the greatest real estate crisis since the financial crisis of um, 2008. Uh, Wait, well, that's and- a
1: way to calm people down isn't it
2: <laughs> well <laughs> a day later they had to reiterate that they are very liquid uh they've got a lot of liquidity they've got 212 percent of liquidity coverage ratio with the minimum required by law being hundred um, percent they've also stated um, more to, into more detail about their funding and that they are actually well funded um, they they have an annual funding need of just two billion that they plan to raise from from covered bonds um, out of which they've already issued one deal in euros one in uh, in Swedish kronor Uh, at the end of January. So that brings it to 800 million. And you can see, you know, um, that's almost half of it is done for the year. They don't need to do any senior issuance. Their senior preferred funding is taken care of through retail deposits. So in that statement, uh, they're saying that they can operate for more than six months without new capital markets funding.
1: I mean, I, look, I'm not an expert on PBB's balance sheet or, or anything like that, but you know which other bank was apparently really well capitalized? It's Credit Suisse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was, it was. And, and you're actually uh, striking right at the concerns of people and it's, um, it's a seasonality, Ralph. Um, a lot of people have been nervous around February and March. Uh, you know, we had COVID and the war of in Ukraine broke out. Then the regional banking crisis last year, which led to Silicon Valley banks fall, which uh, then with the contagion to, to Credit Suisse, so people have been ex- well expecting is, is not the right word here, but they've been afraid of sorts and they've been talking a lot about or maybe half jokingly, half uh, concerned that come, come uh, February, March something could happen um but, but back to where we all started uh, the market has been so strong so some kind of um what what some people call normalization or other people call correction is actually normal to happen right uh mm. you know spreads correcting because it's just been so so strong in the in, in credit markets um phenomenal market conditions um if you look also in the US Citigroup group issued its first bond morgan stanley did a very rare 15 non call 10 to subordinated capital as well in the US so people are buying it not just in Europe they're buying bank debt across the world um,
0: so there's a bit of a paradox isn't there Atenas concern about real estate and after all that is partly caused by higher interest rates putting stress on companies that own property basically and have to have to borrow to fund it um, and at the same time enormous appetite for bank debt so how, how's that going to play out
2: Banks are frequent issuers, right? They, they they finance the economy. They're also they're also well capitalized. They've been having very strong um, profits last year, thanks to these higher interest rates, right? Because the higher interest rates boosted their net interest income, and. Um, now around the end of January uh, early February they're now posting their 2023 results some are posting stronger results others not so strong because now the 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 interest rates fell down a little bit from their peak so things are slowing down um, in terms of earnings but still very very solid earnings they're posting some some banks are are offering to buy back shares and and do um, shareholder payouts including dividends very high double digit numbers. We're talking, for example, Svenska Handelsbank, I think the number was 88% uh, of a shareholder distribution plan for this year. And, and, and that shows you confidence, right? I mean, um, that was one of the concerns last year. For example, real estate in in Sweden because there were um, uh, landlords uh, there in in the country which which were in trouble, they were restructuring. And, and obviously, these banks are uh, Swedish banks, are big lenders, right? Uh, to to them. So some people seem to think the concern is still spreading, and people are putting it, putting European banks as a whole, under the microscope of, of how they're doing. But others seem to think it's at least when it comes to Sweden. The, some one person called this um, concern "cold coffee" by now. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old news. Uh, Sweden is not is not. Is not something specific, but um, Cigna's failure in in Austria seems to be somewhat still vibrating through the system.
1: Uh, Cigna are, of course, the Austrian real estate company that that went under uh, a, a month or two ago, um, and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? This 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 um, it's a really long term problem, if I can call it that. The sort of commercial real estate sector for banks that lend to it. And it's, it's nuanced because, of course, not every bit of commercial real estate is is in peril. Um, we're talking probably mostly, I mean, mostly this week it seemed to have focused on the US market. And I'm guessing there most of the problems are with low office occupancy. There will be other parts of commercial real estate that are absolutely fine, of course. And that, of course, is, is part of the whole problem, isn't it? It makes it really hard to determine where the risks are then in the banking system and where they spread out internationally i mean you know i i, I made a sort of uh, slightly facetious comment uh earlier about credit swiss um you know what you could say about credit swiss was you could see for years and years there had been mismanagement and scandals and losses um there's no suggestion of any of that here. Uh, at at worst, you've got a slightly too concentrated business model. But that does mean that it's quite hard, I suppose, to, um, you know, home in on quite what the exposure is and quite what the losses will be in which particular banks. And maybe that's why the market as a whole hasn't reacted so much at the moment.
0: I don't know if it's hard to home in on it. It's just that it's unpredictable. I mean, before signa went bust, it, it was fine. And, you know, the the risk lies within the companies... And within real estate itself and and you know there things can change quite quickly um but i think the you know the banks if they have been well run and, and well managed and well supervised by the regulators they ought to have uh, quite good visibility on where what risks they hold um and you know i mean let's hope that the system can get through this we we i wouldn't expect of course there to be no stress and no spread widening and no action in the bond market but um one hopes that there won't be any sort of major blow-ups
2: just just to add to that earlier we were talking about um deutsche fund brief bank pbb's um uh massive spread widening but um european banks i've talked to this week they they all told me that this spread widening was purely spreads being adjusted this was not actual trading mm. not people selling mm. their bonds
1: just people um, marking their positions
2: exactly and it's um some people said this was futures led this was not actually led because of um of um, a wave of selling happening of their bonds so um it's more of a marking of of position
1: i think that's fine um and it's true if no one's selling the bonds no one's selling the bonds um however they are marking them wider for a reason Uh, you know it's not because they've got bored um and they just you know fancy tinkering around with their uh portfolios it, it's evidence that there is concern i suppose if not stress at the moment and um i guess we'll see how that develops so, pbb said in its press release that it has uh deposit funding to get it through the next six months um at the same time all these new issues of pricing with no premium or through fair value i mean what about the idea of pbb coming with a uh a short dated senior deal that does pay a premium. I mean, people would lap that up, wouldn't they? If they're really not that worried.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, somebody I was talking to uh, at a big European bank house said everything has a price. Uh, he wouldn't want to sell these uh, issuers that are in the in the um, crosshair of of the. Secondary is right now, but he said everything has a price and people would come to buy them. Um, just, just wanted to add that uh, PBB has no standing institutional short term instruments. Um, they're, they're called uh, certificate of deposit CDs or commercial paper CPs. So that means that they are not dependent on intrabank lending to, for, for, for short term funding. So, right, and
1: by short term, we mean anything from a few days up to a year, don't we?
2: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, usually that's uh, a couple of months, three, six, nine months. But they are funding this kind of, um, uh, they, they're getting this kind of funding through, 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 the, through their deposit base. And as they uh, said in their uh, press release, uh, they have long-term and secured funding of $7 billion in retail deposits, of which more than six billion of fixed-term deposits. So that that implies that they have only sort of this short-term funding from retail of about one billion, and um, these these banks also hold deposits at um, at the ECB. So uh, that's that's not um, a that huge volume of short-term funding needed. I also just wanted to to highlight that they did a um, Swedish krona bond at the end of January, and that bond was priced at the same level of their euro-covered bonds at the time. So they paid no pickup flat to to euros.
0: So basically what this all adds up to is PBB has an extremely conservative balance sheet and management of its liquidity. Um, And there's really not... People haven't been selling its bonds. They've just been marked a bit wider because there was news about New York Community Bank and now Zora Bank. So, I mean, and plus it's profitable in line with expectations so i mean i think um let's hope that the story moves on from them and um, you know they can get on with their with their lives
2: yeah yeah i mean it's it's not just a little bit wider though the bonds are at um at some um some they're subordinated that we were talking earlier about the how great new 81s are doing but their their existing 81 was was quoted uh, not trading, but quoted at a very distressed level of, of mm. thirty-five um, percent to par.
1: But for now, Atanas, there certainly don't seem to be any uh, new issue concerns for banks as a whole.
2: Uh, no, it, it doesn't seem to be the case because Deutsche Bank, which posted higher risk provisions um, related to the real estate sector, they actually did a Yankee bond, a dollar bond, sold to U.S. investors as well. They did a one billion four-year non-cold tree bond and that bond got a demand of almost four and a half billion that that shows you um, you know huge huge investor demand people happy to buy and bank which actually said well we are posting higher risk provisions but it's working <laughs>
1: Hello George welcome back to the podcast.
3: Morning thank you very much for having me.
1: Now I'm pretty sure last time you were on which was a couple of weeks ago uh, you were telling us about the very exciting return of African sovereign bond issuers to the market after two years where they couldn't do deals uh, but I'm also sure that uh, you, you told us that uh, nobody thought Kenya um, was in a position to do a deal uh, but what's happened this week?
3: Yeah you're right I think um, but this week they have said they want to do a deal so I think a lot has changed in two weeks. Um, no kidding. For for probably the wider senior market, but especially African sovereigns. Yeah,
1: because there have been other other African sovereign bonds since uh, Ivory Coast, haven't there, which is the one you came on to talk about before.
3: Yeah, so there was Ivory Coast and then Benin came uh, at the start of this week. And that again, that was one, I think, that wasn't really on anyone's radars. It was a, an opportunistic deal. They do, They don't have any maturities for a couple of years, so there was no you know pressing need for them to to issue a new bond but they did and it went pretty spectacularly well from from the sounds of things
1: kenya is a completely different kettle of fish though isn't it because uh benin and ivory coast you know they're among the better rated uh credits uh in sub-saharan africa or at least you know more favorably viewed shall we say kenya though looked like it might have been heading for default so what what's happened
3: yeah you're right um within the sort of last year or two that period since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when yeah most African sovereigns or pretty much all of them were locked out of the primary, it's been on the radar of investors as a country that might struggle um, to repay its debts without market access. And the reason for that is it has a two billion maturity coming up in June, which is big for any sovereign to repay in one go, but especially for um, someone in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, And I think what's changed is there there was a big rally at the end of last year for emerging market bonds, which brought Kenyan yields down um, alongside lots of others. Um, And then, yeah, the primary market so far this year has seen Ivory Coast, one of the sort of darlings, as it were, of of sub-Saharan African sovereigns then Benin, which probably falls into the same category. Um, And now Kenya, which is sort of another rung down, which, yeah, as as we said, Probably a year ago, there was absolutely zero chance of it issuing a euro bond and probably even a few weeks ago, I think a few people would have been surprised. So a lot has changed very quickly.
0: And to be clear, though, it's not exactly as if Kenya was sort of suddenly w- waltzing into the market to issue new debt and, and invite investors to um, sort of lend it more money. This is very clearly tied to the redemption that it's got to make of two billion dollars in June. And, and it's being done in connection with a tender offer, isn't it?
3: Um, So Kenya, yeah, as you say, it's tied to this redemption coming up. It's not going to be raising any new money. It's hoping to raise about a billion dollars, according to someone involved in the trade. And all of that money is going to go to a tender offer for this two billion maturity. And a tender is effectively, they're going to buy back that bond early. They're going to repay investors early ahead of the maturity date. Um, And yeah, a billion would would cut it in half and it it would make that June maturity, you know, noticeably smaller. And it will be doing it at par as well which is quite important
0: so that means basically they're saying to investors look we'll give you a billion dollars of this two billion dollar bond back early so you know we you're going to get it back but in return for that you're going to lend us the money um for another period right right
3: yeah exactly so it's it's a seven year bonds they're planning on maturing so if it's, it's almost like they're just swapping sort of one bond for another really um which will hopefully um remove any any pressure on kenya and and remove any lingering default fears um as long as as long as the deal goes well and that the tenders well well taken
1: taking a step back from the kenya deal though because that's really emblematic of or symptomatic perhaps of just how buoyant the market is you know like we made the point at the start that two weeks ago no one thought they could come to market now they are here um what's what's going on? Is this just a worrying or, you know, uh, a notable level of investor exuberance or are there other sort of technical factors driving driving the demand behind all these new issues?
3: Um, yeah, there's a few reasons, really. Um, as you say, I mean, this week in the CMEA primary market was pretty insane from what bankers have been saying and, and investors too. Um, books for deals have been huge. Uh, new issue premiums have been almost non-existent. Um, I think for, for issuers, the two main attractions are that spreads are historically tight. So uh, from a pricing perspective, it just means issuing is is attractive. And secondly, there's also a sort of fear of missing out, which sort of goes two ways. I think one investor said that last September, when the primary market was in really good health as well, some issuers didn't come and were stung by a big sell-off in October, which lasted into November a bit and effectively closed the primary market early in 2023 for a lot of issues. So they missed out then. They want to come now um, to avoid missing out again. And looking forward, there's also that fear that this might be the best window because while the market is expecting interest rate cuts this year from the US, um, it's not guaranteed. We, ha- we had that conversation a year ago and rate cuts never happened in 2023. So although it may be a, a small fear, there is still that fear that You know, if those rate cuts don't come about this year or not as much as people expect or much later in the year than people expect, this could be the best window of the year. So there's sort of a twofold reason for issuers to want to do it now.
1: But also, though, I mean, you know, the end investors that put money into the emerging market funds that buy the bonds that we're talking about. I mean, there's outflows, net outflows from those funds. So where are they getting all this DOSH from?
3: Yeah, um, investors had had warned um, last week that, these outflows, as you say, means that the demand is going to drop because investors just won't have as as much money because they're spending lots of it, buying new bonds and not getting any from their end clients. Um, But there's been a big difference this January in the redemption. So bonds maturing, then the money going back to investors were just over 50 billion in January from CMEA, corporates, sovereigns, all all different types of issues in that region, which is more than double any other January in the last decade. So they've got this big wall of cash coming in that has gone somewhere at least to mitigating outflows and does mean that they still have all this money that they can invest
1: and, and any issue any sensible issue we want to uh take take full advantage of that i imagine um while they can
3: yeah i'm sure issuers is are fully aware of that and and it is also i mean it's always january is always the year with the most redemptions um just this january is particularly high and that is why january tends to be the busiest month of the year because sovereigns sovereigns particularly who have big funding plans, want to get as much done as early as possible, whilst there is that cash around. And it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy, as it were, that the more issuance there is, then in five, ten years' time, the more redemptions there will be. So the more cash there is to buy bonds, it sort of goes full circle.
1: But then going back to Kenya, George, our EM uh, our poster boy for the week, um, the, the key question here is, of course, about debt sustainability. And they might be bringing this new deal, but what are they going to have to pay for it?
3: Uh, a lot relative to other issuers and historical levels. I mean, Benin and Ivory Coast uh, printed with coupons well below 10% and 10% is this sort of magic number that the market likes to put as the sort of limit to whether you have market access or not. If you're above it, you just can't issue a new bond because one, as you say, debt sustainability, a lot of countries just can't afford to have bonds with coupons like that. It's a lot of money to have to keep paying. And secondly, investors just don't like it because it makes an issuer look desperate. Um, is, is the word they often use. And Kenya is going to have to pay above 10% because that's where its bonds are trading. Um, bonds with maturities near to the one they want to issue, that is. is. And I think sort of 105 to 11% is the number that has been um, sort of bandied about by investors and, and bankers. Um, so, yeah, it, that, that will draw some attention and maybe draw some criticism. Um, but I think Kenya will argue that it's better to do this and... Uh, take out a big chunk of that maturity. Um, I I think one investor made a a good point is that whilst the timing uh, might be not ideal for a tender, just a few months before a two billion maturity and the price might be very high for for the bond that they're gonna issue, the mistake was Kenya issuing a two billion bond in the first place 10 years ago and that is Mm. not the fault of this government. So um, yeah, it it will be expensive, particularly relative to the two sovereigns that have come from Africa in the last few weeks.
0: I imagine that one of the things Kenya will have to communicate on quite carefully with the market as it does this exercise is how it plans to repay the other billion dollars, uh, assuming it can it can raise a billion and buy back a billion, a billion of the
3: of the June deal. Now,
0: so, have they said anything about that yet?
3: Um, no, but, but I think what has also pleased the market with Kenya is that it's it's shown like a lot of other. Um, below investment grade sovereigns that have struggled with market access is that they've been able to get together funding from quite a few other different sources. So uh, concessional financing from the IMF, for example, um, development banks. So there's that source, which um, can contribute quite a big chunk to that other 1 billion. They, they got a nearly 400 million loan from an African development bank a few, a few weeks ago, for example. Um, there's also reserves. You know, Kenya does have foreign currency reserves um which could easily i think it, i think it was just over 7 billion if, as of last week um which in theory could you know easily cover that 1 billion but whilst that sounds like a lot of money it's only a few months worth of imports so investors really wouldn't want them to use that money for a eurobond repayment when in you know it could limit their ability to to pay for their imports so um i think i think the main point of the exercise is to Allow them to use as little as their reserves as possible in June. So take out a billion by issuing a new bond now, and then with the remaining billion, they can use con- concessional financing for you know X amount of that remaining one billion, and it, it's yeah, and protect their reserves. That's that's the main point of this, I think. <laughs>